Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today we're doing another Zane Grey baseball story, titled The Manager of Madden's Hill. And now, our story. Willie Howarth loved baseball. He loved it all the more because he was a cripple. The game was more beautiful and wonderful to him because he would never be able to play it. For Willie had been born with one leg shorter than the other. He could not run, and at eleven years of age it was all he could do to walk with a crutch. Nevertheless, Willie knew more about baseball than any other boy on Madden's Hill. An uncle of his had once been a ball player, and he had taught Willie the fine points of the game. And this uncle's ball player friends, who occasionally visited him, had imparted to Willie the vernacular of the game. So that Willie's knowledge of players and play, and particularly of the strange talk, the wild and whirling words on the lips of the real baseball men, made him the envy of every boy on Madden's Hill, and a mine of information. Willie never missed attending the games played on the lots, and he could tell why they were won or lost. Willie suffered considerable pain, mostly at night, and this had given him a habit of lying awake in the dark hours, grieving over that crooked leg that forever shut him out of the heritage of youth. He had kept his secret well. He was accounted shy because he was quiet and had never been able to mingle with the boys in their activities, No one except his mother dreamed of the fire and hunger and pain within his breast. His schoolmates called him Daddy. It was a name given for his bent shoulders, his labored gait, and his thoughtful face, too old for his years. And no one, not even his mother, guessed how that name hurt Willie. It was a source of growing unhappiness with Willie that the Madden's Hill boys were always beaten by the other teams of the town. He really came to lose his sadness over his own misfortune in pondering on the wretched play of the Madden's Hill Baseball Club. He had all a boy's pride in the locality where he lived, and when the Boggs farm team administered a crushing defeat to Madden's Hill, Willie grew desperate. Monday he met Lane Griffith, the captain of the Madden's Hill Nine. "'Hello, Daddy,' said Lane. He was a big, aggressive boy, and in a way had a fondness for Willie. "'Lane?' "'You got an awful trimming up on the bogs. "'What if you were to let them country jakes beat you? "'What'd you want to let them country jakes beat you for? "'Ah, Daddy, they was lucky. "'Umpire had hayseed in his eyes. "'Robbed us. He couldn't see straight. "'We'll trim them down here Saturday.' "'No, you won't. Not without teamwork. "'Lane, you got to have a manager.' "'Dern it, where are we going to get one?' "'Lane blurted out. "'You can sign me.' I can't play, but I know the game. Let me coach the boys. 
The idea seemed to strike Captain Griffith favorably. He prevailed upon all the boys living on Madden's Hill to come out for practice after school. Then he presented them to the managing coach. The boys were inclined to poke fun at Daddy Howarth and ridicule him, but the idea was a novel one, and they were in such a state of subjection for many beatings that they welcomed any change. Willie sat on a bench improvised from a soapbox and put them through a drill of batting and fielding. The next day in his coaching he included bunting and sliding. He played his men in different positions, and for three more days he drove them unmercifully. When Saturday came, the day for the game with Boggs Farm, a wild protest went up from the boys. Willie experienced his first bitterness as a manager. Out of 40 aspirants for the Madden's Hill team, he could choose but nine to play the game. And as a conscientious manager, he could use no favorites. Willie picked the best players and assigned them to positions that, in his judgment, were the best suited to them. Bob Irvine wanted to play first base, and he was down for right field. Sam Wickard thought he was the fastest fielder, and Willie laid him slated to catch. Tom Lindsay's feelings were hurt because he was not to play in the infield. Eddie Curtis suffered a fall in pride when he discovered he was not down to play second base. Jake Thomas, Tay-Tay Moeller, and Brick Grace all wanted to pitch. The manager had chosen Frank Price for that important position, and Frank's one ambition was to be a shortstop. So there was a deadlock. For a while there seemed no possibility of a game. Willie sat on the bench, the center of a crowd of discontented, quarreling boys. Some were jealous, some were outraged, some tried to pacify and persuade the others. All were noisy. Lane Griffith stood by his manager and stoutly declared the players should play the positions to which they'd been assigned, or not at all. And he was entering into a hot argument with Tom Lindsay when the Boggs Farm team arrogantly put in an appearance. The way that team from the country walked out upon the field made a great difference. The spirit of Madden's Hill roused to battle. The game began swiftly and went on wildly. It ended almost before the Hill boys realized that it had commenced. They did not know how they'd won, but they gave Daddy Howarth credit for it. They had a bonfire that night to celebrate the victory, and they talked baseball until their parents became alarmed and hunted them up. Madden's Hill practiced all that next week and on Saturday beat the 7th Ward team. In four more weeks, they'd added half a dozen more victories to their record. Their reputation went abroad. They got uniforms and baseball shoes with spikes and bats and balls and gloves. They got a mask, but Sam Wickert refused to catch with it. Sam, one of these days you'll be stopping a high end shoot with your eye, sagely remarked Daddy Howarth. And then where'll I get a catcher for the Natchez game? Natchez was the one name on the lips of every Madden's Hill boy. For Natchez had the great team of the town, and roused by the growing repute of the Hill Club, had condescended to arrange a game. When that game was scheduled for July 4th, Daddy Howarth set to driving his men. Early and late he had them out. This manager, in keeping with all other famous managers, believed that batting was the thing which won games. He developed a hard-hitting team. He kept everlastingly at them to hit and run, hit and run. On the Saturday before the 4th, Madden's Hill had a game to play that didn't worry Daddy, and he left his team in charge of the captain. Fellers, I'm going down to the roundhouse to see Natchez play. I'll size up their game, said Daddy. When he returned, he was glad to find that his team had won its ninth straight victory, but he was not communicative in regard to the playing of the Natchez club. He appeared more than usually thoughtful. We'll return to our show right after this sponsor message. 
Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now, back to our story. July 4th fell on a Tuesday that year. Daddy had the boys out Monday, and he let them take only a short, sharp practice. Then he sent them home. In his own mind, Daddy didn't have much hope of beating Natchez. He had been greatly impressed by their playing, and one inning toward the close of the roundhouse game, they had astonished him with the way they suddenly seemed to break loose and deluge their opponents in a flood of hits and runs. He couldn't understand this streak of theirs, for they did the same thing every time they played, and he was too good a baseball student to call it luck. He had never wanted anything in his life, not even to have two good legs, as much as he wanted to beat Natchez, for the Madden's Hill boys had come to believe him infallible. He was their idol. They imagined they only had to hit and run, to fight and never give up, and Daddy would make them win. There was not a boy on this team who believed that Natchez had a chance. They had grown proud and tenacious of their dearly won reputation. First of all, Daddy thought of his team and their loyalty to him. Then he thought of the glory lately come to Madden's Hill, and lastly of what it meant to him to have risen from a lonely watcher of the game, a cripple who could not even carry a bat, to manager of the famous Hill team. It might go hard with the boys to lose this game, but it would break his heart. From time out of mind, there had always been a rivalry between Madden's Hill and Natchez, and there is no rivalry so bitter as that between boys. So Daddy, as he lay awake at night planning the system of the play he wanted to use, left out of all account any possibility of a peaceful game. It was comforting to think that if it came to a fight, Sam and Lane could hold their own with Bo Stranathan and Slugger Blandy. In the managing of his players, Daddy observed strict discipline. It was no unusual thing for him to find them. On practice days and off the field, they implicitly obeyed him. During actual play, however, they had evinced a tendency to jump over the traces. It had been his order for them not to report at the field Tuesday until 2 o'clock. He found it extremely difficult to curb his own inclination to start before the set time, and only the stern duty of a man to be an example of his players kept Daddy at home. He lived near the ball grounds, yet on this day, as he hobbled along on his crutch, he thought the distance interminably long, and for the first time in weeks the old sickening resentment of his useless leg knocked at his heart. Manfully, Daddy refused admittance to that old gloomy visitor. He found comfort and forgetfulness in the thought that no strong and swift-legged boy of his acquaintance could do what he could do. Upon arriving at the field, Daddy was amazed to see such a large crowd. It appeared that all the boys and girls in the whole town were in attendance, and besides, there was a sprinkling of grown-up people interspersed here and there around the diamond. Applause greeted Daddy's appearance, and members of his team escorted him to the soapbox bench. Daddy cast a sharp eye over the Natchez players practicing on the field. Bo Stranathan had out his strongest team. They were not a prepossessing nine. They wore soiled uniforms that did not match in cut or color. But they pranced and swaggered and strutted. They were boastful and boisterous. It was a trial for any Madden's Hill boy just to watch them. What a swelled bunch! 
exclaimed Tom Lindsay. "'Fellers, if Slugger Blandy tries to pull any stunt on today, he'll get a sweller nut,' growled Lane Griffith. "'Tell him to keep out of my way and not block me,' stuttered Tay-Tay Mulder. "'We're gonna skin him,' said Eddie Curtis. "'Cheese it, kids, till we get in the game,' ordered Daddy. "'Now, Mads Hill, hang around and listen. "'I had to sign articles with Natchez. "'Had to let them have their umpire. "'So we're up against it. "'But we'll hit this pitcher, Muckle Harris. "'He ain't got any steam, and he ain't got much nerve. "'Now, every fellow who goes up to bat wants to talk to Muck. "'Call him a big, swelled stiff. "'Tell him he can't break a pane of glass. "'Tell him he can't even put one over the pan. "'Tell him if it does, you'll slam it down in the sandbank. "'Bluff the whole team.' Keep scrappy all the time. See? That's my game today. The Natchez bunch needs to be gone after. Holler at the umpire. Act like you want to fight. Then Daddy sent his men up for practice. Boss, any ground rules? Inquired Bo Stranathan. He was a big, bushy-haired boy with a grin and protruding teeth. How many bases on wild throws over first base and hits over the sandbank? All you can get, replied Daddy with a magnanimous wave of the hand. Huh. Let me see your ball. Daddy produced the ball that he had Lane made for the game. Huh? What you think? We ain't gonna play with no mush ball like that, protested Bo. We play with a hard ball. Look here. We'll throw up the ball. Daddy remembered what he heard about the singular generosity of the Natchez team to supply the balls for the games they played. We don't have to pay nothing for them balls. A man down at the roundhouse makes them for us. They ain't no balls as good, explained Bo with pride. However, as Bo did not appear eager to pass over the balls for examination, Daddy simply reached out and took them. They were small, perfectly round, and hard as bullets. They had no covers. The yarn had been closely and tightly wrapped and then stitched over with fine beeswax thread. Daddy fancied he detected a difference in the weight of the ball, but Bo took them back before Daddy could be sure of that point. You don't have to fan about it. "'I know a ball when I see one,' observed Daddy. "'But we're on our own grounds, and we'll use our own ball. "'Thanks all the same, Stranathan.' "'Huh. All I got to say is we'll play with my ball or there won't be no game,' said Bo, suddenly. Daddy shrewdly eyed the Natchez captain. Bo did not look like a fellow wearing himself thin from generosity. It struck Daddy that Bo's habit of supplying the ball for the game might have some relation to the fact that he always carried along his own umpire.' There was a strange feature about this umpire business, and it was that Bo's man had earned a reputation for being particularly fair. No boy had ever had real reason to object to umpire Gale's decisions. When Gale umpired away from the Natchez grounds, his close decisions always favored the other team rather than his own. It all made Daddy keen and thoughtful. Stranathan, up here on Madden's Hill, we know how to treat visitors. We'll play with your ball. Now keep your gang of rooters from crowding on the diamond. Yeah, boss, it's your grounds. Fire them off if they don't suit you. Come on, let's get in the game. What you want, field or bat? Field, replied Daddy briefly. Billy Gale called play, and the game began with Slugger Blandy at bat. The formidable way in which he swung his club did not appear to have any effect on Frank Price or the player back of him. Frank's most successful pitch was a slow, tantalizing curve, and he used it. Blandy lunged at the ball, missed it, and grunted. "'Hey, Frank, you got his alley,' called Lane. 
Slugger fouled the next one high in the air back of the plate. Sam Wickert, the stocky bow-legged catcher, was a fiend for running after foul flies, and now he plunged into the crowd of boys, knocking them right and left. And he caught the ball. Wisner came up and hit safely over Griffith, whereupon the Natchez supporters began to howl. Kelly sent a grounder to Grace at shortstop. Daddy's weak player made a poor throw to first base, so the runner was safe. Then Bo Stranathan batted a stinging ball through the infield, scoring Wisner. Play the batter! Play the batter! sharply called Daddy from the bench. Then Frank struck out Malloy and retired Dundon on an easy fly. Fellers, get in the game soon, ordered Daddy as his players eagerly trotted in. Say things to that Muckle Harris. We'll walk through this game like sand through a sieve. Bob Irvin ran to the plate waving his bat at Harris. Put one over, you freckle face. I've been dying for this chance. You're on Madden's Hill now. Muckle evidently was not the kind of pitcher to stand coolly under such bantering. Obviously he was not used to it. His face grew red and his hair waved up. Swinging hard, he threw a ball straight at Bob's head. Quick as a cat, Bob dropped flat. Never touch me, he chirped, jumping up and pounding the plate with his bat. You couldn't hit a barn door. Come on, I'll pace one a mile. Bob did not get an opportunity to hit, for Harris couldn't locate the plate and passed him to first on four balls. Dump the first one, whispered Daddy in Grace's ear. Then he gave Bob a signal to run on the first pitch. Grace tried to bunt the first ball, but he missed it. His attempt, however, was so violent that he fell over in front of the catcher, who couldn't recover in time to throw, and Bob got the second base. At this juncture, the Madden's Hill band of loyal supporters opened up with a mingling of shrill yells and whistles and jangling of tin cans filled with pebbles. Grace hit the next ball into second base, and, while he was being thrown out, Bob raced to third. With Sam Wickard up, it looked good for a score, and the crowd yelled louder. Sam was awkward, yet efficient, and he batted a long fly to right field. The fielder muffed the ball. Bob scored, Sam reached second base, and the crowd yelled still louder. Then Lane struck out, and Moeller hit the shortstop, retiring the side. Natchez scored a run on a hit, a base on balls, and another error by Grace. Every time a ball went toward Grace at short, Daddy groaned. In their half of the inning, Madden's Hill made two runs, increasing the score three to two. The Madden's Hill boys began to show the strain of such a close contest. If Daddy had voiced aloud his fear, it would have been, They'll blow up in a minute. Frank Price alone was slow and cool, and he pitched in masterly style. Natchez couldn't beat him. On the other hand, Madden's Hill hit Muck Harris hard, but superb fielding kept runners off the bases. As Daddy's team became more tense and excited, Bo Stranathan's players grew steadier and more arrogantly confident. Daddy saw it with distress, and he could not realize just where Natchez had license for such confidence. Daddy watched the game with the eyes of a hawk. As the Natchez players trooped in for their sixth inning at bat, Daddy observed a marked change in their demeanor. Suddenly they seemed to have been let loose. They were like a band of Indians. Daddy saw everything. He did not miss seeing umpire Gale take a ball from his pocket and toss it to Frank, and Daddy wondered if that was the ball which had been in the play. Straight away, however, he forgot that in the interest of the game. Bo Stranathan bawled, "'Well, engines, here's where we do them. We've just been loafing along. Get ready to tear the air, you rooters.' Kelly hit a wonderfully swift ball through the infield. Bo batted out a single. Malloy got up in the way of one of Frank's pitches, and was past the first base. 
Then, as the Natchez crowd opened up in shrill clamor, the impending disaster fell. Dundon hit a bounder down into the infield. The ball appeared to be endowed with life. It bounded low, then high, and cracking into Grace's hands, bounced out and rolled away. The runners raced around the bases. Pickens sent up a tremendous fly, the highest ever batted on Madden's Hill. It went over Tom Lindsay in center field, and Tom ran and ran. The ball went so far up that Tom had time to cover the ground, but he could not judge it. He ran round in a little circle with hands up in bewilderment, and when the ball dropped it hit him on the head and bounded away. "'Run, you engine, run!' bawled Bo. "'What I tell you? We ain't got him going. Oh, no! Hitting him on the head!' Bill dropped a slow, teasing ball down the third baseline. Jake Thomas ran desperately for it, and the ball appeared to strike his hands and then run up his arms and cross his nose and wrap itself around his neck, then roll gently away. All the while, the Natchez runners tore wildly around the bases, and the Natchez supporters screamed and whistled. Muck Harris could not bat, yet he hit the first ball and it shot like a bullet over the infield. Then Slugger Blandy came to the plate. The ball he sent out knocked Grace's leg from under him as if it were a ten-pin. Wisner popped a fly over Tay-Tay Moeller's head. Now Tay-Tay was fat and slow, but he was a sure catch. He got under the ball. It struck his hands and jumped back twenty feet up into the air. It was a strangely live ball. Kelly again hit the shortstop, and the ball appeared to start slow, to gather speed with every bound, and at last to dart low and shoot between Grace's legs. Ha-ha! roared Bo. They've got a hole at short. Hit for the hole, fellers. Watch me. Just watch me. And he swung hard on the first pitch. The ball glanced like a streak straight at Grace, took a vicious jump, and seemed to flirt with the infielder's hands, only to evade them. Malloy fouled a pitch, and the ball hit Sam Wickert square over the eye. Sam's eye popped out and assumed the proportions and color of a huge plum. Hey, yelled Blandy, the rival catcher, are you catching with your mug? Sam would not delay the game, nor would he don the mask. Daddy sat hunched on his soapbox, and, as in a hateful dream, he saw his famous team go to pieces. He put his hands over his ears to shut out some of the uproar, and he watched that little yarn ball fly and shoot and bound and roll to crush his fondest hopes. Not one of his players appeared able to hold it, and Grace had holes in his hands and legs and body. The ball went right through him. He might as well have been so much water. Instead of being a shortstop, he was simply a hole. After every hit, Daddy saw that ball more and more as something alive. It sported with his infielders. It bounded like a huge jackrabbit and went swifter and higher at every bound. It was here and there and everywhere. And it became an infernal ball. It became endowed with a fiendish propensity to run up a player's leg and all about him as if trying to hide in his pocket. Grace's efforts to find it were heartbreaking to watch. Every time it bounded out to center field, which was a frequent occurrence, Tom would fall on it and hug it as if he were trying to capture a fleeing squirrel. Tay-Tay Moeller could stop the ball, but that was no great credit to him, for his hands took no part in the achievement. Tay-Tay was fat and the ball seemed to like him. It boomed into his stomach and banged against his stout legs. When Tay saw it come and he dropped on his knees and valoriously sacrificed his anatomy to the cause of the game. Daddy tried not to notice the scoring of runs by his opponents, but he had to see them and he had to count. Ten runs were as ten blows. After that, each run scored was like a stab in his heart. The play went on, 
a terrible fusillade of wicked ground balls that baffled any attempt to field them. Then, with 19 runs scored, Natchez appeared to tire. Sam caught a foul fly, and Tay-Tay, by obtruding his wide person to the path of infield hits, managed to stop them and throw out the runners. Score? Natchez 21, Madden Hill 3. Daddy's boy slouched and limped wearily in. "'What kind of ball is that?' panted Tom, as he showed his head with a bruise as large as a goose egg. "'T-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-t-
Umpire Gale called the first pitch a strike. Tay slammed down his club. Tit, tit, twasn't over, he said. Shut up, yelled Daddy. We want to get this game over today. Tay Tay was fat, and he was also strong, so that when beef and muscle both went hard against the ball, it traveled. It looked as if it were going a mile straight up. All the infielders ran to get under it. They got into a tangle into which the ball descended. No one caught it, and thereupon the Natchez players began to rail at one another. Bo stormed at them, and they talked back to him. Then, when Tom Lindsay hit a little slow grounder into the infield, it seemed that a just retribution had overtaken the great Natchez team. Ordinarily, this grounder at Tom's would have been easy for any novice to field. But this particular grounder, after it has hit ground once, seemed to wake up and feel lively. It lost its leisurely action and began to have celerity. When it reached Dundon, it had the strange, jerky speed so characteristic of the grounders that it confused the Madden's Hill team. Dundon got his hands on the ball, and it would not stay in them. When finally he trapped it, Tom had crossed first base, and another runner had scored. Then Eddie Curtis came up and cracked another at bow. The Natchez captain dove for it, made a good stop, bounced after the rolling ball, and then threw to Kelly at first. The ball knocked Kelly's hands apart as if they'd been paper. Jake Thomas batted left-handed, and he swung hard on a low pitch and sent the ball far into right field. Runners scored. Jake's hit was a three-bagger. Then Frank Price hit up an infield fly. Bo yelled for Dundon to take it, and Dundon yelled for Harris. They were all afraid to try for it. It dropped safely while Jake ran home. With the heavy batters up, the excitement increased. A continuous scream and incessant rattle of tin cans made it impossible to hear what the umpire called out. But that wasn't important, for he seldom had a chance to call either ball or strike. Harris had lost his speed, and nearly every ball he pitched was hit by the Madden's Hill boys. Irvine cracked one down between short and third. Bowen Pickens ran for it and collided while the ball jauntily skipped out to left field and, deftly evading Bell, went on and on. Bob reached third. Grace hit another at Dundon, who appeared actually to stop it four times before he could pick it up, and then he was too late. The dowdy bow-legged Sam, with his huge black eye, hung over the plate and howled at Muckle. In the din, no one heard what he said, but evidently Muck divined it, for he roused to the spirit of a pitcher who would die of shame if he couldn't fool a one-eyed batter. But Sam swooped down and upon the first ball and drove it back toward the pitcher. Muck couldn't get out of the way, and the ball made his leg buckle under him. Then that hit glanced off to begin a marvelous exhibition of high and erratic bounding about the infield. Daddy hunched over his soapbox bench and hugged himself. He was far-sighted, and he saw a victory. Again he watched the queer antics of that little yarn ball, but now with different feelings. Every hit seemed to lift him to the skies. He kept silent, though every time the ball fooled a Natchez player, Daddy wanted to yell. And when it started for Bo, and as if in revenge, bounded wickeder at every bounce to skip off the grass and make Bo look ridiculous, then Daddy experienced the happiest moments of his baseball career. Every time a tally crossed the plate, he would chuck it down on his soapbox. But when Madden's Hill scored the 19th run without a player being put out, then Daddy lost count. He gave himself up to revel. He sat motionless and silent. Nevertheless, his whole internal being was in the state of wild tumult. It was as if he was being rewarded in joy for all the misery he had suffered because he was a cripple. He could never play baseball, but he had baseball brains. He had been too wise for the tricky Stranathan. He, Daddy Howarth, was the coach and manager in general of the great Madden's Hill Nine. 
"'If ever he had to lie awake at night again, "'he would not mourn over his lameness. "'He would have something to think about. "'To him would be given the glory "'of beating the invincible Natchez team. "'So Daddy felt the last bitterness leave him, "'and he watched that strange little yarn ball "'with its wonderful skips and darts and curves. "'The longer the game progressed "'and the wearier Harris grew, "'the harder the Madden's Hill boys batted the ball "'and the crazier it bounced at Bo and his sick players. "'Finally,' Tay-Tay Moeller hit a teasing grounder down to Bo. Then it was as if the ball, realizing the climax, made ready for a final spurt. When Bo reached for the ball, it was somewhere else. Dundon couldn't locate it, and Kelly, rushing down to the chase, fell all over himself and his teammates trying to grasp the elusive ball, and all the time Big Tay-Tay was running. He never stopped. But as he was heavy and fat, he did not make fast time on the bases. Frantically, the outfielders ran in to head off the bouncing ball, and when they'd succeeded, Tay-Tay had performed the remarkable feat of making a home run on a ball batted into the infield. That broke Natchez's spirit. They quit. They hurried for their bats. Only Bo remained behind a moment to try and get his yarn ball. But Sam had pounced upon it and given it safely to Daddy. Bo made one sullen demand for it. Funny about them fast finishes of yours, said Daddy, scornfully. Say, the ball's ours. The winning team gets the ball. Go home and look up the rules of the game. Bo slouched off the field to a shrill hooting and tin canning. Fellers, what was the score? asked Daddy. Nobody knew the exact number of runs made by Mads Hill. Give me a knife, somebody, said the manager. When it had been produced, Daddy laid down the yarn ball and cut into it. The blade entered readily for an inch and then stopped. Daddy cut all around the ball and removed the cover of tightly wrapped yarn. "'Inside was a solid ball of India rubber. "'Say, it ain't so funny now how that ball bounced,' remarked Daddy. "'Well, what do you think of that?' exclaimed Tom, feeling the lump on his head. ta 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 began Tay-Tay Moeller. "'Say it, say it,' interrupted Daddy. "'T-t-t-trimmed. We t-t-trimmed them with their own baseball,' finished Day. Thank you all for joining us for this wonderful Zane Gray baseball story. Here are a few recent reviews from our Apple listeners. We do appreciate reviews very much. This one, one word, all, five stars. I listen almost every night and really love the stories, especially the mystery ones. Please keep on. Down from Travis Cat, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, five stars. Makes dog walking a delight. I'm not much of a reader. I really have to be in the mood to commit to reading a book. However... I've always desired to have more interest and knowledge of classic works. This podcast has fit that desire for me. I love listening, and it sure makes walking the dogs go by in a flash. Down from Range Walker, Apple Podcast, U.S. And Fun Listen, five stars. The stories are great fun. That one from Papa Lens, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Great stories, a wide range of short stories with great narration. That one from Solitary Confinement, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great stories and very well presented. Five stars. Thank you. That one from Icy Cold Racer, Apple Podcast, Australia. Thank you also very much for taking the time to write these reviews. They're greatly appreciated, and they help us find new listeners. We're also not shy about asking for your support at Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And there, for about the cost of a blended coffee per month, you can help support us going forward, and we appreciate that support and our Patreon supporters very much. And I try to send out early bird shows, weekly, and best of 1001 podcast on a weekly basis. And those are all ad-free for you guys. 
Until next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.